Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. You know how we're always asking our listeners to send us questions, Sherry? Yeah. Oh, I want to ask some questions of our listeners. Oh. Got a little survey we've been putting together. It is about emotional intimacy, physical intimacy, and sexual satisfaction, and how that all relates to trust. And that survey is going to be coming out this spring. Just putting some finishing touches on it. And so we'll have an official announcement coming soon. But I do want to warn people that it's coming and get their their juices flowing. And you might think, someone wants to survey me about intimacy issues? No way. Well, here's my counter argument. This survey is going to be completely anonymous. We're not going to collect anyone's name or any other distinguishing characteristics. We're not going to ask you where you live or what you do for a living. None of that stuff. And the reason we're going to keep it anonymous is because we want to encourage the most participation possible. And the connection between these challenging intimacy issues and relationship distress, the challenges that exist in uh, relationships that have been impacted by alcoholism, they're, um, they're inextricable. They are, they are linked. They are one and the same. And so uh, this survey could lead to some really important stuff. It could lead to some interventions to help people find their way out of um, you know, tough alcoholic, alcohol-fueled relationships um, and healing within the relationship. So the survey is coming soon. If you're thinking, you know, is that something I want to participate in or not? Uh, I hope you'll keep in mind that it's anonymous, that we won't ask you for any distinguishing characteristics, and that um, this is your way to give back. This is a great opportunity to share some deepest, darkest kind of secrets, details, but do it in a way that no one will ever track that you're the one that shared them. And we can compile all this data together and tell a really compelling story about what it's like to live in an alcoholic relationship and the destruction that that does to intimacy. Are you going to take the survey, Sherry? Mm, we'll see. <laughs> you were my guinea pig. Actually, you're, I was going to say, I'm it. I didn't know how to answer it. I thought, well, we sound positive or I've already taken it. So do you, can you at least, um, share that, uh, you know, it's okay. Like it didn't, yeah. didn't break you to take it or anything. Yeah. It wasn't, I mean, cause it's not like, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, like, like numbers and ratings and things like that. And yeah. I mean, it's not like your, you said your deepest, darkest secrets. You don't divulge that. Yeah. Necessarily. Good Except for in numbers and a scale. Yeah. So. Lots of scales. Very, yeah. Very scientific. Um, so that's coming soon. We want to continue to encourage people to send in listener questions. We've gotten quite a few. When you send them, if you can make it pretty clear that it's a listener question for the podcast, we would appreciate it. Sometimes I get emails and I'm not sure if they are podcast listeners or if they just have a question that they're asking and this is really the forum that we have set up to answer those questions. So if you can just say, hey, this is a listener question, that would be great. Send those to matt at soberandunashamed.com. 
you won't get a scientific answer necessarily, but you will get an answer based on the experiences that Sherry and I have been through and some of the experiences um, that we are aware of from all the folks and couples and people that we know. So we would love to continue to receive those listener questions. Our listener question for today, I'm going to start with a little background. Um, love it when our listeners send us you know, a paragraph or two of background before they actually ask their question. This is someone who is separated, and both parties, both the husband and wife, are working on themselves. Um, the husband is the alcoholic in this scenario. He carries a lot of anger and resentment for her controlling ways. And that is in quotes, controlling ways. Uh, they get along, and then he remembers how angry he is, and it goes in that kind of a cycle. So a cycle of peace and then a cycle of anger. And right now he's four weeks sober. Uh, he has uh, accomplished that in part through participation in the 12-step program Celebrate Recovery. And so here is her exact question. Do you find early in recovery this pattern of alcoholics being hot and then cold towards their wives to be typical? Want to take a shot at that, Sherry? Well, I would say yes, but I think it can go for both parties just because I'm thinking of like how the the recovery and working on yourself process brings up a lot of emotions and a lot of feelings. So I think there will be ebb and flows. I think, you know, it's just a matter of how you respond and react to that and contain that. I mean, understanding that there might be, you know, it doesn't matter which side. Anger is a, is a feeling that we can't deny. So whether or not you're... Ooh, I like that angry at the past or the partner or, you know, whatever it is, it's the way you're going to respond to it and understanding. And I'm not even going to say you need to get to the point where you understand that your role in that situation, but it's working it out healthy. And I was just reading something. Um, I get a blog post from um, a gentleman named Richard Rohr, who is in the pastoral um, side of life, but it was talking about like, sometimes you just, you know, it's that situation where you just sometimes have to sit with the feeling and understand that you're not going to have reconciliation on every argument and every situation. And so you have to find peace with that. And that is what grows you as a human, that everything isn't going to have a reconciliation or a, or a way to be resolved. But I think that it's just highly emotional, highly charged. Both sides are going to have it. Yeah, both sides are, are going to experience the hot and cold, as she says. I think I want to, you know, try to explain because I, you know, I was in a similar situation. I think by the time I got sober this final time, um, this time that has stuck, I internalized a lot of the anger and didn't express it because I had had 10 years of failed attempts at sobriety and I knew that it wasn't an effective strategy to express the anger. So, um, but I can remember back to when I was expressing frustration, felt resentment for you, blamed you for a lot of my drinking, blamed you for the necessity that I be sober. Um, and I can tell you that that is all just twisted up in shame. 
and I and sh- the shame and the identity piece. The identity piece is I wanted to be a drinker. I thought being a drinker was cool. I thought you know the movies that portray alcohol in a positive light, and all of my friends that we still tried to even as we were approaching midlife and we had growing kids, we still tried to act like we were in our twenties and be able to drink a bunch of beer on a Saturday night. All of that identity was really important to me. And then the shame of not being able to do it successfully and the shame of causing distress in my relationship and the shame of calling you names and the shame of drinking more than I wanted to, all that got twisted up. And especially um, when I wasn't really willing to acknowledge that alcohol was the problem, then I had to find something else that was the problem and often I would pick you. And so I would blame you, whether I expressed that, which I did a lot, or I internalized it. And we meet people all the time. Listen, we are in the relationship recovery business. So we meet people all the time who the drinker is not quite sure that they need to quit. Or they're sure that they need to quit, but they think that they need to quit because they're going to lose their family if they don't. That's very different than needing to quit because you recognize that you're addicted to the substance and that it's a maladaptive coping mechanism hiding underlying trauma. That's a healthy place when you recognize that. When you say, yeah, I need to quit, but I need to quit because my wife's a bitch and she won't get off my back. Whew, you are a long way from uh, you know, making healthy progress in recovery. So the hot and cold pattern, yes, very typical. Um, usually the the anger is just wrapped up in shame and identity, and that's why uh, that person is taking it out on you. Now, Sherry, let me ask you, kind of part two to her question is, so how do I react? What do I do when my husband turns it on me and says, you know, I'm resentful toward you. You are, what it was the quote? You are, you have controlling ways, and your controlling ways are what has caused this problem. Hmm. Yeah, I would probably. I in the throat. Yeah, I probably would have done that. But like looking back, had I had a little bit more knowledge, I would have not reacted and said, "Well, if that's, I'm sorry you feel that way, and maybe in a few days you can think about it and 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 try to reevaluate that situation." You know, I wouldn't want to try to throw in the defensiveness that I had done early yeah. on, like, "Well, you don't know what you did to me," you know, that sort of backlash and I think sort of not reacting is the best way to that you can handle it even though that would ugh, that would eat me up inside in the mm-hmm. beginning of the many attempts and the last time that the sobriety that stuck I felt like I was a lot less reactive to your comments so I mean that disinterest of and You know, I I think that it's, you can't defend yourself because I think that it's going to be, I mean, if they stay sober and they're working on themselves and getting healthy, they're going to understand the mistake Mm -hmm. there. Yeah. You know, they're going to, and eventually, and, and maybe one thing you can say early on is, well, maybe instead of blaming me, blame the alcohol. Yeah. It's not only effective, but accurate also. Yeah. The other, the other thing I would say is just stick to your boundaries. If you have determined, and again, boundaries are not something that you implement on somebody else. Boundaries are for you. 
So if you, wife, have decided that alcohol has no place in your home anymore, it has caused too much damage and it's not a good fit for you, then when my husband started ranting and raving at me about how I was to blame and I was in all of my controlling ways, I would say, listen, I have decided to live an alcohol-free existence and I don't care what you do. You can come along or not come along, but I'm not going to be around you when you're drinking. And so you can process the anger that you've got, and I'm sure that that's hard. And maybe you can find a therapist or a group to work through it with. But, uh, you know, I, I'm i just going to, my boundary is no alcohol in the house, no alcohol around me. And if you want to be a part of that, great. And if you don't, that's fine. Let you take some time to figure that out. So boundaries and emotional detachment. Yeah, a little bit of the. It's kind of the key to everything, isn't it? Yeah. Keep coming back to it. Yeah, because I don't think you're going to say anything in that moment that's going to make any sense or stick. Uh, yeah, you're not going to you're not going to convince. Yeah, yeah, you're not going to try to win the argument. Nope. But the last thing that you want to do if you're being accused of being a control freak is to tell them what they need to do. Yeah. That doesn't go well. Just tell them what you're willing to live with. And they can be a part of your life or not. Uh, sounds sounds really cold and abrupt, but I, you know, I think I think that is the thing that has the highest likelihood of working and being successful. So I want to talk about expectations today, Sherry. Um I think it is fair and right and good in any marriage or any partnership, any committed, you know, monogamous romantic relationship for both parties involved to have an expectation of peace and safety. And I want to use an example that I've used in the past. If you were out in the evening and it was dark and you got mugged in a dark alley by me then uh and you know like beat up or something although i think anyone who listens to the podcast knows that if you and i ever had a throwdown i would be the one that came out worse for the wear but anyway let's just assume that i was your mugger it would not be uh, your responsibility to rehabilitate me. It would not be your responsibility to rebuild trust with me. And it certainly wouldn't be a situation where you would feel safe and comfortable sharing a home or a bed with me, right? So there's a lot of trauma involved in being mugged and assaulted. There's also a lot of trauma involved in living in an alcoholic relationship. And so I don't know why we seem to distinguish between those two scenarios and say, oh, yeah, if I assault you physically or if I mug you, then um, you have every right to be afraid of me. But if all I do is emotionally abuse you for decades and create uh, you know, an environment where you never know what's going to happen and I gaslight you and I lie to you and I have denials... If that's the situation, then you need to get over that right away because I need you to support me. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense to me. Would you agree? 
I agree. Not logical. So if we have an expectation that I think is fair for both parties in a relationship for peace and safety, if you've been through an alcoholic relationship, that expectation has been has been destroyed or has not been met. Let's say that that mm-hmm. way. So coming back from active addiction in recovery, in individual recovery and relationship recovery, we have to create that safe environment. And it doesn't have to just be like creating it from the start because when the slate is wiped clean at the beginning, there is an, not only an expectation of safety, but there's also an anticipation of safety. If you start dating and you get serious with someone and you kind of you go down the path of bonding your life together, whether you get married or you move in together or whatever, um, you, you know, you like this person, you know this person, you have this initial sense of trust with this person, you, uh, you are anticipating that this is going to go well. I mean, otherwise we would never bond to, it, to another person, right? Yeah. Well, when you're coming back from alcoholism, that anticipation of it going well has been flipped on its ear. It's reversed. Now your anticipation is that it's not going to go well. So I can't just become spontaneously sober and say, ha ha, I will never lie to you or yell at you again. Everything's great. And you're just going to, you know, fall into that accepting. You're not. You're going to be skeptical and you're going to be expecting the worst. And so building a safe environment is not spontaneous. It takes place over years and years. And, uh, you know... I have to be 100% consistent in not yelling, not raising my voice, not creating an unsafe environment. You with me on all that? Yeah. When I say 100% consistent, I want to I want to make one thing clear. There are times when I am short with you or I say something that I shouldn't have said. I mean, I'm not I'm still human, I'm not perfect. But when we say 100% consistent, One thing I do think that I do now that I didn't used to do is I recognize my mistake in the moment. Maybe I look at your face and see the look on your face. Or maybe I just hear the words come out of my mouth and I'm like, oh, shouldn't have said that. And so I try to reconcile the situation in the moment. I will say, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. I shouldn't have said that. I was distracted over here. I didn't didn't look away from my computer while I answered you and I didn't give you my full attention. And that's why my response was abrupt and you know, inappropriate. Do you feel like when I talk about 100% consistency, even in times when there are mistakes made, that the correction comes pretty fast? How do you feel about that? Yeah, I think that um, you've just become a lot more aware of your behaviors and actions. So the consistency that I see in you is that, you know, um... You analyze the situation sometimes, I think, before you respond. You just don't immediately react. You, if you are kind of short, like you said, you correct it quickly and acknowledge in the moment or, um, you know. And you've also gotten, like, I think goes along with consistency is understanding yourself a little bit. I mean, you've learned yourself. Like, you have to say, okay, so I need to just finish this and then I'll, then I can talk. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, cause I want to give you attention. Yeah. So you're being respectful of me, but you're also respecting yourself by saying, I do need to finish this. And then I would love to talk to you about this. So I think that's also being consistent, not just being a doormat, Yeah. but respecting yourself and, and your work. 
I, I mean, I know that sounds kind of weird. Like, I know that oftentimes you'll say that you're trying to win me back or court me back and that sort of stuff in the beginning. But it is also about, like, like me looking at you and understanding you respect yourself, too. And that, I think, you know, goes a long way. Because then that, that just is a, a level of respect for both of us. Yeah. Yeah, um, me respecting myself, that ties in with kind of the next point I wanted to make about expectations and this safe environment. It's really important. It was important for me and it's important for others who are in recovery as the drinker to find support outside the marriage. Back to my mugger example. It is not fair for me to take the person that I have traumatized for years and in our case decades and turn to you and expect you to lick my wounds for me. That is not fair. That is <clears throat> that is the societal standard. That is what everybody expects. Everybody expects that once the alcoholic finds sobriety, the spouse is the person they're going to lean the hardest on. And that makes it made sense to me for years, but it makes no sense to me now. If you are the person I have hurt the most, you are the last place I should turn for support. Now, maybe that's being too dramatic. <clears throat> is it okay for me to share with you what I'm learning? Yes. Is it okay for you to tell for me to tell you when I'm, you know, being when I'm triggered or when I'm feeling a craving and just express that to you? Yes, it is. But for me to expect you to hold me accountable and to to say the right thing so that I don't relapse. Like that's total bullshit. Yeah, that I, is not on you. Yeah, I can't be your warden, your parole officer, nope. and your cheerleader. Nope. You know. And that's where... And that was, that was something that was hard for us in the, the first few times. Yeah. When you tried to get sober and you would have long-term, longer-term sobriety, less than a year. But, you know, I, you kind of took that, well, we're at a partnership. We're an island. We don't need anybody else. Yeah. So, fiercely, because you were so embarrassed and ashamed... You didn't want to reach out to any support groups. Yeah. Well, that and I just believed, I believe that's what marriage was. And I was just wrong. I mean, you can't expect your marriage, alcoholism or not, to fill all your buckets. You can't expect your marriage to meet all your needs. Yeah. It's okay for me to have needs for companionship. You know, not sex, but just friendship outside of the relationship. I get some things from coworkers. I get some things from people we go to church with. I get some things from neighbors. I get some things from the soccer community that I, you know, I play and coach in. And that's not only is that okay, that's how it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And so for me to expect you to be everything to me, especially like you said, in this shameful, hidden, secretive world of of early recovery when I wasn't talking about it openly, that's just ridiculous. So I needed to find support outside the marriage. That is going to build the peace and safety expectation if I'm not expecting all of that to come from you. And also, I don't... I think that a lot of us that are the partner and the non, non-addicted, we know that we can't come to you and talk to you about our problems because... I remember quoting once to you, I can't talk to you about my problems because you are my problem. Mm, yeah. And there would be that defense layer 
you know, the defensiveness. And you were a problem solver. So you would come up with these half-assed solutions of <laughs> we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're go- I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to have these set of rules and that's going to fix it. Yeah. Well, it couldn't, I mean, I couldn't quite put my finger on it that it just, you know, alcohol seeped through every part of the relationship. <clears throat> Excuse me, that I couldn't really, like, explain it, but all I could say was I feel like you're not the person I can really unload and unburden to. Yeah. And you never understood that. Yeah, and to make the distinction, resentment processing is an important part of relationship recovery. Down the road, when you could share experiences with me without it re-traumatizing me and me getting defensive, that's really important. But it's not the first step. Like, you can't when you're first feeling these ways and I'm in early sobriety, you can't, you're right, it's not safe for you to unload on me because I will get defensive. Yeah, I just feel like that's a really heavy burden for both parties. Yeah. Because you and I also are coming at it from different places. I don't understand the addiction and elation that you got from drinking, but, and you couldn't understand why I didn't see that or how I didn't understand that. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. So finding support outside of the marriage is a real key to meeting these expectations for peace and safety. Uh, there are expectations on the loved ones, uh, or pardon me, expectations that often the loved ones have that are not healthy. And I want to talk about this a little bit. Um, um, for the loved ones, sometimes... They think that the recovery of their alcoholic spouse means that they'll start to think like them. So I know that's a lot of uh, pronouns. In our case, you're waiting for me to make progress in recovery to the point where I start to think like you. That is uh, the example of health and full recovery. And it's just not the case. Even... As I got healthier, it didn't mean our thought processes and our actions, you know, to be real tangible, our parenting, for instance, our financial decisions, our decisions in other relationships, our work decisions, they have not necessarily aligned in my recovery. There are lots of ways in which I still do things differently than you, and it doesn't mean that I'm not doing the work of recovery. Fair? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I just think sometimes, you know, I think sometimes that the loved ones think uh, until he would respond in a certain situation the exact same way I would respond, he's not done enough work in recovery. Yeah. How would you react to that? Um, I don't feel like I put, I think for us, I don't feel like I put that many burdens on you because, you know, I was dealing with my own shit. So it's not like I was walking around thinking I was perfect. Yeah. You know. Most people are so hard on themselves. I think very few people walk around thinking they're perfect. But I think there are times where I would think, you know, why aren't you looking at this parenting issue the way I'm looking and viewing it? Sometimes I would, like, misunderstand or sometimes I would feel like, well, maybe you just don't care as much or you're not as invested as much. Um Let's use I, let's use a real tangible example. Uh, this is something that happens in our life. Our we live almost exactly one mile from the high school that our kids all eventually attend. 
And sometimes in the winter, it'll be a cold and snowy day before we now have three of our four kids have driver's licenses. But before the third of four got his driver's license, he preferred to walk to school as opposed to riding his bike. And so it would be a cold and snowy day and it's one mile. And I would be like, yeah, he's walking. And you, your mothering instinct, your love for your son would take over and you would really want to drive him and often you would. Mm-hmm. Did you, What did you think about me because I wanted him to walk the mile? Well, I guess if it was, if this had been one of the older kids, I would have really thought, God, what an asshole. You've put them through hell. But this is number three where he hasn't had... Yes, he lived in his early childhood with addiction. And I wouldn't have crossed that. I would have made him walk if it was the older ones where you were still more into early sobriety because I didn't want to cross you and start that argument. Because I was unsafe. You were unsafe. Um, But I think I also have enough confidence now to say, like, Ironically, I work like a block from the school. So it's literally like our street and nine blocks. And then I would drop him off and he walks two blocks and then I go park my car and work. Um, so it, it now is I kind of think. interesting how on snowy days you have to go in earlier than on uh, non-snowy days. You tend to, I don't know what it is about your work, well, but one you day have to I go do, in right when one school One day I have a meeting and on one day it's days. just nice to get there and have a little ahead of time. But you're right. I mean, <clears throat> I probably now think like, well, I know you're developing skills and survival skills and I appreciate that more because I see our older two, you know, they actually live north of us, so their colleges um, get are some are colder and get some weather. So I think that it's helped them. And I've also kind of appreciated that you're trying to give him a skill set and survival skills and decision making. And I am okay with me like saying, oh, I just want to mother him some more because he's not going to be here that long. You know, mm-hmm. and I have like this whole confidence to say, but this is what I feel is right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there are times where he's pissed me off and I've been like, you're walking, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, so I think, I think this is probably a pretty good example because it has changed over time. There was a time when you were afraid to go against what I had to say because you didn't feel safe in your relationship. There was a time when you, I think you just said, what an asshole. So you thought, like you didn't have an appreciation for the fact that my way was different, but it was also a good way. You thought my way was different and I was an asshole and it was a bad way. There was a period when it was that. Yeah, that you're just hard on them. And there was a period when I thought you were soft. Yeah. And I think... Now, I very much understand that nurturing component, that protective mother love that's different than what I feel. And I very much understand when you just really, you are not going to be comfortable unless you've driven them to school. And I get that. And I think that you get that I'm not just an asshole, but that I've got my own set of 
parenting kind of priorities. I just think we have a ton more respect for each other. And it isn't because we've aligned. It isn't because you've come this way and I've come this way and we have met in the middle and we are the same. It also isn't because since I was the one with the alcohol problem, I have done enough recovery work that I have come over to your side of the street and I firmly believe what you believe. That hasn't happened. We still have different parenting styles. I just think we have more respect for each other. What do you think? Yeah, I think... Or do you still think I'm an asshole? (laughs) No, I mean... You know, I still reconcile with the guilt of, like, many times wanting to take the other kids, the older kids, to school when it was bad. And I would do it if you weren't at home. Right. Um... So, yeah, I think it's just a a level of respect and appreciation that other people can have separate opinions. And we know that it's, you're not putting them in danger. You're not, you know, um, doing this to be mean or anything of that nature. And I can see that now. Yeah. That's really interesting. So... We have respect for each other's opinions. We have respect for the fact that our opinions differ from each other. But you've still got that kind of lingering anger, frustration, resentment over the fact that it didn't used to be a safe environment where it was okay for us us to have different expectations and opinions. And that um, yeah, that and still it, hurts. Yeah, and it's Makes guilt. Sense. I wish I had stuck up. You know, a couple of times. For well, but you were in an impossible situation. Yeah, I, I would have freaked out. I know I would have. I would have freaked out. Yeah. So why start? I would have the said, kids off to school on a bad day. I wouldn't you know? have freaked out because the kids had done anything wrong or anything. I, you know, I would have freaked out because <laughs> I thought it was so important for them to not be coddled. Yeah. And to it's one mile. It's like the perfect distance. It's not five miles. It's not uphill both directions. There are sidewalks, and and it's in the light of day. So that's the perfect, you know, scenario for them to make it safely, but have to deal with a little bit of life reality. And um, so I would have absolutely flipped out back then. Because I didn't understand. I didn't understand, you know, I didn't understand that your way was also... Uh, really viable and acceptable and that it was affecting you emotionally so I'm sorry very sorry for that but you know in addition to I mean I think that's an important conversation that we have but in addition to that I think it's important to acknowledge what you have come to believe which is my recovery doesn't look like me agreeing with everything you do yeah well and that I kind of that's where I think that word recovery piece I do appreciate. I I married you because I thought you were smart and intelligent and had good ideas. You know, you were funny, you were witty, you saw things a different way than I did, but I appreciated that in you. You know, you had a different upbringing, and I appreciated that in you. I appreciated the, you know, the opposite of what I had grown up. So it is kind of recovering back to what you were and who you were. I mean, if I wanted to marry, I would have never married anybody that was the same as me, you know, 
And and so it is kind of recovering back to that sort of initial attraction um, in the relationship now. I think that we look for partners who are different than us that help us grow together. Like, there is that attraction and there is that peace. So there is a... You have to, like, think, well, I married this person or I'm in relationship with this person in partnership with this person because they offer me something that I can't do for myself or they offer a different lens of looking at things. And and I know that addiction and um, takes away a lot of that respect. So I think it's going, it's recovering back to that respectful place. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, you know, like we don't want to have somebody that's just a yes man, ma'am, or yes sir sort of partner, I think. If you do then, and if you're the sober one, then maybe you have a little bit more work to do on yourself. Well, I think that's the point I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you're making because, yeah, I just think sometimes because the relationship has been dysfunctional for so long, the, the, the loved one, not the drinker, the other person equates effective recovery with when they start seeing things my way. And that's, I don't, I think that's a false equivalence. I think that's, I think you, you have an unrealistic expectation at that point. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not fair to, to tell the, the former alcoholic, you're not, you're not in recovery because you don't see it my way. Yeah. And for you, I think there was a lot of, as a drinker, you had a lot of control issues because you were trying to control an uncontrollable. So, so many other parts of your life, you had to have control. Yeah. And so, in our relationship, you really were not all interested in what I had to offer and say as far as a difference of opinion. Um, because there was that need to control it uncontrollable. And if this was something you could control and be in charge of, we did it that way because you would argue and then I would get mad and then I sounded like a lunatic. So why would you want to listen to a lunatic's opinion about something? Whereas now you have a lot more respect for the things I offer and my opinions because you were just at a much more respectful place and appreciate that I do have a different outlook and I do offer a different lens for you to view things. And it doesn't mean that you have to always acquiesce. For, you know, like my side of things and I don't have to do that for you. And we do have lots of things where we're like in disagreement about or have a difference of opinion, I guess. And we're okay with that. I think that's really important. I'm glad you brought that up because at the same time as we're making the case for as the loved one, as the non-drinker, you can't expect this person to come over to your side of the fence on everything. And that's the sign that they're doing good in recovery. At the same time, that power dynamic, that control issue is such that uh, you you also, as the loved one, as the non-drinker, should not be expected to see things completely the way of the drinker either. It's a mutual respect. It's, it's again, back to the same thing. It's safety. So if, you know, and because I did this early on, right? I, I got sober and I read all the things and I learned all the stuff and then I started espousing all my learnings to you and expected you to do things my way. And so that's not healthy either. Um, we just have to acknowledge that we're individuals and have that mutual respect. That is 
what will lead to safety, and that is a good expectation to have. Yeah, because I think there's, there's so much respect and appreciation lost in addiction. Yeah. Because of our behaviors. Yeah. Uh, my hero, Belgian-American psychotherapist Esther Perel, that's for you, Jane, says that it is important for attraction to be maintained and safety uh, to be maintained in a relationship. It is important for us to be in our own element and for our partner to see us in our own element. Something happened just recently to you and I. Um, we run a nonprofit and we got bad news about a grant that we have had in the past and we're hoping to continue to have. And so we got bad news about that. And that was uh, an emotional situation. Um, I feel like I was kind of prepared for that potential and uh, maybe had a little bit of time to process it before I shared the news with you. And so by the time you heard the news, I was pretty okay with it and kind of already had worked out in my head the solution. And I, I feel like I showed up for you in that moment as a stable person who, um, you know, didn't think the sky was falling and didn't wasn't screaming and yelling and throwing stuff and and angry about it and so I feel like that is an example because in the past there were many times where oh god especially things that we didn't have control over if they went bad that would make me so mad so hurt so frustrated and so this is an example of something I mean I think we did everything right and it still went south on us so it's a situation where we didn't have control over it. It didn't go our way. And I handled it pretty well. I, I feel like I'm just sitting here bragging. <laughs> yeah. I feel terrible about I'm that. sitting here thinking, well, you had put it out in the universe that you're like, in a couple years, if this is the way we turn. And I'm like thinking, oh, you put it out in the universe. And now here it is. It sped up. The pessimistic point of view. You know. But my question but for you But you is, had already kind of reconciled that of, of working away from that piece of it, you know, but then I was like hit with it, you know, and we were getting ready to move on to this next thing. And I just felt like, but it's not in our timeline. Again, it was that control thing. Like we didn't have control over whether or not we were going to get it. It wasn't in our timeline. I was so hurt and frustrated and confused and thought, haven't we done everything right to get this? And I just felt like it was a slap in the face from the people that denied the grant. Not by you. Not that you did anything wrong. Was it helpful to you that I wasn't ranting and raving? And yeah. So that's when Esther Perel talks about being in your own element, being confident and having some self-esteem and and talk, you know, that was missing from our relationship for many, 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 many years from my side of things. Yeah. And it, but, How did it feel to you? Did that Did that elicit feelings of safety? Mm. I was going to say, like, you did the, you know, trust me, it'll all work out because okay. you're an optimist okay. and I'm a pessimist. So that made me frustrated in the moment. Did I said, trust me, it'll all work out? Yeah. And, and 
like I've said many times before, I never lost trust in you financially. I knew you would work your fingers to the bone. You would work 22 hours a day to support our family financially, you know. Um, yes, there were small things like where you'd be like, okay, well, we got to really, you know, tighten the belt. So I'm going to keep drinking and you need to cancel your, you know, $70 membership to the gym. You know, your monthly membership. Because I need to still drink, but you can go walk around the park. Well, I would at least switch to PBR or yeah. something. I mean, or I was, something I was that, doing my part. Or Coors Light that just made you drink more. But You do have to drink a lot of <laughs> To get, get the buzz. buzz of a double IPA. But in hindsight, like, I never lost that trust from you. And then, so it, it was that same feeling again of trust me. And I'm like, yes, I trust you. It all will work out. Everything will be fine. We will not be destitute. But damn it, it didn't follow my timeline. It didn't follow the timeline you put out. So I was slightly frustrated. But I got over it. But And I was never angry with you. I just still like was in shock and belief, disbelief. Like, what? We've had, like, we, we're like the ideal people. Well, you are because you're well, an A-type personality. I'm not questioning so, your reaction. Your reaction was fine. It was a... It was a it was bad news, and you had yeah. a slightly emotional reaction, which is totally cool. You didn't like flip out so, or go burn down the building where the decision was. Yeah, made. I didn't want to go. But my question is, how was <coughs> like compare the way I reacted made you feel versus if I had been throwing pots and pans and screaming and yelling? Right. So, well, in a long roundabout way, I was getting to that. I was like, so as you were saying things like. Well, do you want to look at the email? Do you want to look at this? Do you want to look at that? You were offering me all of these things that you think might offer comfort Mm -hmm. and closure and consolation for this. Mm -hmm. So instead of, you know, God, they really suck and cursing and being mad, you know, you were like trying to help me resolve and kind of get through this emotional distress. Uh Whereas in past and early sobriety drinking days... You would have already been really drunk and pissed and... Well, that's true. You know, and not cared that I was upset, which then would have just... That's true. ...exasperated the situation. So you were tr- you were looking at my reactions. You were saying, what can I do to help my partner here navigate these feelings? And that is like a safety net that we don't... We didn't experience. Even though I, it still took me a while and I'm sure I'll still get fuming about it if I think about it later on you know I'm never that's what I love about you you're I know. Just, I, got, I love that about you I got some anger issues I have to work on I guess but I'm always gonna think he didn't overreact he didn't underreact he was he reacted in a way that made me feel safe and like he understood me let's give another example of how we react to things differently and how that is okay. When something comes up, uh, bad news. Let's let's make it let's make it tangible. Let's say one of the kids goes to the orthodontist. The orthodontist what? says, "Are you you're using an orthodontist?" All right. I don't know. <laughs> you want to use something different? I just feel like you make it sound like our kid. I'm really our okay. kids have really let's say up teeth. one of our ki- one of our kids cuts themselves, which happened with three of our four kids, and they have to go to the emergency room. Obviously, we are both concerned about the stability of the kid. Like, 
is this a life-threatening, have, have we been able to stop the bleeding? But once the bleeding has stopped, I immediately start thinking, oh, emergency room, we are self-employed, which means we're self-insured, which means that's a thousand bucks. That's a thousand bucks minimum. That's the first thing that goes through my mind. What's the first thing that goes through your mind? Well, I'm just thinking of the three kids that we're talking about and the bleeding never stopped, so we did have to go. Yeah. Oh, I'm not yeah. saying we didn't have to go. Yeah, I'm just saying, so the bleeding didn't stop, so it ha- it was a had to go, so I guess I didn't think of anything other than, you know, getting you to be on board with helping. Yeah, helping the kid. Helping the kid, yeah. yeah. The kid was the the kid in there, and what about when they were really emotional? They were crying hard and... Yeah, well... How did that I make guess you that's, feel? Yeah, I guess that's all I thought about was trying to ease the pain and understand, have them feel like it was going to be okay and we knew as adults that it's going to suck before it gets better you know getting the lidocaine shots before you got the stitches that you know so i never said anything about the money in front of the kid but if we were in the waiting room or if it was we were off to the side and i had you know oh, while I we're you were there and about I'd money. Go, oh, i can't believe how much it's going to cost us yeah so the point i'm trying to make is no matter how sober I get, no matter how long I'm in recovery, I am never going to have the same exact thoughts that you have. Obviously, first and foremost, stability. Is the kid going to be okay? Oh, they are? Okay, great. Now I'm going to fixate on the money. Mm-hmm. You are never going to think about the money. First, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth. It's well, gonna... I'm going to think about the money because you've made me think about the money. <clears throat> yeah, but it's not going to come top of, top of mind is all these other things. Are they going to have a scar after the stitches, right? Are, you know, how, how um, what kind of care are we going to have to provide at home or can we provide at home to make them more comfortable? These are all the thoughts from a nurturing mind that are going through your head. Um, so back to this topic of my recovery does not equate to thinking like you. Are you comfortable with the fact that my thoughts are going to be different than yours in a situation like that? Well, now, yes. Yeah. Now, yes. Before, no. Before, Before you thought, I would be like, what an asshole. Why are you only talking about the money? <laughs> he you makes him walk to your... school and he, all he can think about is the money. Yeah. So, like, before I'd been like, you're not even caring, like, they're crying and they're upset and is it going to scar? Because one of them does have a scar on their cheek that's, you know, disappeared over time. But it could have been, you know, because there was a consult about, like, should we get a derm, you know, a plastic surgeon down here? And you were like, no, no, no. You know, and uh no that's not true because you were like well let's see how it goes because they wanted to have the plastic surgeon come down immediately and assess before they did the stitches no that doctor said i'm really good i can do this that doctor looked at me and said i can do this okay I mean, I don't think it's fair to say that I would let my kid be facially discontinued. Well, it was just a small scar and he was young. And so growing over time, I felt like, I felt like the nurse said, should we get the plastic surgeon down here to do this? Yeah. And then the doctor said, no, I'm really good at this. But the point is, I think of something different first. You think of something different first. You are not waiting for me to be fully recovered until I think of that thing the way you think of it. Fair? Um, Did I lose you? Yeah. So am I not recovered? Am I still a dry drunk because I don't think of things the way you think of them 
when uh, there's an emergency room visit. No. Like, I don't feel like that now. Yeah. Yeah. That That's just, that's the point I'm trying to make. My okay. recovery does not mean we feel the same. And in fact, I would argue that our family is better because we have two different reactions in, in situations of crisis because... Um, you know, you're thinking of things and I'm thinking of things and they're different things and that protects our family. If we were both only thinking of the same thing, I think it would be more dangerous. I think there's a reason there are two people involved in this, you know, the top of the hierarchy of our little nuclear family. Mm-hmm. Two people means two opinions, means we keep from messing things up. Like a checklist. Yeah, kind of. Um... <clears throat> So, you know, to kind of wrap things up, um, I think we have to recognize that there are lots of couples with extended sobriety where the former alcoholic doesn't appreciate the importance of safety and uh, they continue to live long term in relationships where there is sobriety. There has been some level, perhaps, of recovery work. Maybe there have been AA meetings that have ceased to exist, or maybe there are AA meetings, but they continue to, you know, they're kind of growth-oriented. They're like, let's go tell our rock-bottom story to make sure we don't relapse, which is fine. That's your thing. But I think there are a lot of couples in extended sobriety where the former alcoholic gives the silent treatment or is abrupt about their answers Um, And I just, I think it's important that we finish on the point that that is not safety. Um, Even if you're not drinking, even if you're not yelling, even if you're not name calling, even if you're not telling lies, if you have this abrupt, silent, um, no room for emotional sharing relationship, then you're not creating an environment of safety. And... um, so I think that expectation is off as well. If you expect your marriage to be fine and thrive, even if you're abrupt and short and not um, not making communication viable, uh, I, I think that's I think that's impossible. And I know it's hard for a lot of dudes. It's hard for us to talk and be vulnerable and to listen. But if you want to create an environment that's safe and, and going to potentially mean your marriage is going to get better. I think you got to go there. Don't you? Mm-hmm. I do. Yeah. So, uh, lots of areas where expectations, um, can maybe be, be hindering relationship recovery. If you're expecting the alcoholic to finish up looking just like you and acting just like you, I don't think that's going to work out if you are the alcoholic and you're, you've learned all this stuff in sobriety and you're expecting your partner to look like you, talk like you, sound like you, that's not going to happen. That's not going to be good if you don't have an environment where um, communication is relevant and, and fostered and nurtured. Uh, I don't see how that can go. And we just have to create these environments of safety, meaning no more raised voices, no more name calling, no more denials, no more lies. Um, and we're finding our support network outside the marriage. So there's a lot to it, to creating safe expectations and a safe environment. But 
I'd say it's worth it. What do you think? I do. And I think in our relationship, you were a lot more willing to communicate and be vulnerable verbally um, than I was. I'm a guy like to shove it down and don't talk about it and it'll be okay. Um, so I think that because you were very comfortable with that and you understood and appreciated that, even though some, like you understood, you know, also I have to keep my mouth shut sometimes. I think our communication has gotten better because you've been able to keep me engaged and and shown me that it is okay to express myself and be vulnerable verbally instead of just shutting down. Yeah. Don't be a stuffer. So, yeah. <laughs> so, and I think I, I just wonder, like, how topical our... And surface level, our relationship in recovery would be if we, if you did not value that and encourage me to be more engaged. Yeah. Yep. Well, thanks for talking to me about expectations. You're welcome. Yeah. I expect. (laughs) God, stop. (laughs) That it's time to stop talking. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.